0: Good morning. She wrote, My dearest Jimmy, Words cannot express the great unhappiness of heart that I have felt since breaking off our engagement. Please take me back. No one can take your place in my heart. Please forgive me. I love you, I love you, I love you. Yours forever, Marie. P.S. Congratulations on winning the state lottery. (laughs) Sometimes it seems like love may have ulterior motives, doesn't it? Do we ever treat our love for God that way? Do we ever feel like in our relationship with God that things are great? so long as things are going our way. But we'll reach out to Him, we'll connect with Him, if they are, or if we need them to be going our way. What kind of love does God want us to have for Him? When we begin to contemplate the great love that Scripture indicates that God is the originator of, He tells us what kind of love He would like to see, expect. He commands of us. He wants to see a love that is full of patience and hope that endures for the future, that is humble, that is outwardly focused in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We also would expect and understand that the love He wants us to show is a love that it was without hypocrisy, Romans chapter 12 and verse 9. It is a love that builds others up, as we understand in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 1. It is a love which obeys, John chapter 14 and verse 15. And it is a love that demonstrates itself by action. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 18. But here's something for us to always keep in mind about God. God never asks you to do anything that He Himself has not already perfectly done. In 1 John 3.16 we see that we understand we know love because Jesus Christ died for our sins. You know, we sing that song, and I believe if we were to poll the congregation anonymously, many of us would say that the song that we just sung is our favorite hymn to sing in worship. It's beautiful. It strikes a chord of tenderness in our heart. It really excites us, and it really causes us to be filled with resolve that we want to be closer to God. I find it interesting, the background behind this particular quotation. As Cooper read to us so well a moment ago, Did you see how the text began in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 34? There were a series of tests that Jesus endured. One group after another is trying to catch Jesus in his words, try to entrap him so that they would have reason to do what they ultimately would do according to the plan of God, and that is to hang him on a cross. The last group, the last question that was ever put to Jesus, that's recorded for us at least by Matthew, is when a law expert came up to Jesus and he said, I want you to tell us what is the greatest commandment in the law. 613 commandments in the law of Moses. Which one is the most important one of them? Jesus, can you tell us? Moses. In the giving of the Shema, one of the three things to be recited, why would this be the foundation of all the other laws with regard to priesthood and sacrifices and worship? Some have uh, described for us Deuteronomy six and verse five and Matthew 22 and verse 37 as three concentric circles. That is, overlapping circles. They're not three separate spheres. That is, they don't dwell independently of one another. What God is calling for us is to give Him reciprocally after He has given everything for us. He wants us to give all that we are, our heart, our life, and all of our relations. I'd like for us to notice the greatest command in Matthew 22, verse 34 through 40. It comes, and we thought about this text for our sermon today, given the fact of the month in which it is. I would say, ladies, but more likely I need to say, guys, you've got eight days. Valentine's Day is coming. And you want to get on the bandwagon, don't you? Did you know Americans spend well over $20 billion every year in Valentine gifts of a variety of assortments? That includes $5 billion in jewelry, almost $2 billion in candy. And they say that 85% of all... Valentine's Day cards are purchased by women. I don't know how that works out. But men spend five times more than women do on gifts. Americans spend almost a billion dollars every year in buying Valentine's Day gifts for their pets. You know, if a foreigner were to get a hold of those particular statistics and apply it to American culture, they may come to the conclusion that no such thing as divorce or domestic dispute in a society where so much is given on valentine's day but you know it's easier to speak love and to spin for love than it is to show love jesus would show us in matthew 22 verse 34 through verse 37 how it is that god wants us to love him notice with me very briefly that as we uh, examine what is said in this first part of the lesson that we are to love the Lord our God with passion. When he leads out with how we are to love the Lord, he says we're to love Him with our heart. And the heart is the innermost part of the being. It is the seat of the intellect. But I want you to understand that he is calling for more than a cold and rational response. He is calling for that which, because when you speak of the heart, you're also speaking of the emotions, the inclinations, and the efforts. We still use the word that way, don't we? I love you with all of my heart. What are we saying? We're saying, I love you with all that I am. And what God is saying is that I want you to love me with your innermost being, with all that you are, and all that that drives you to do and to be. When we think in terms of that kind of of a love, we think in terms of how we often speak in our culture today. What's one of the things that we may often hear? What's your passion And thanks to social media, we can get some idea about that, can't we? Because we post pictures about it. And we make posts about it. And if we are so wrapped up in it, so often we'll make posts and send pictures to other people's posts just so they'll know exactly what we feel so strongly about. And when we feel so strongly, it will spill over into our emotions. That kind of passion is something that you can't fake. You know, people who know me know what it is that I care so much about. But the question that all of us need to ask is, do people associate you and me with our passion for Christ? And I think of one of the greatest examples of that, the Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 2, he said, And I, brethren, when I came to you, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And then in Philippians 3 and verse 10, Paul, you can almost hear him aching as he says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And how do we prove that? Look at the corpus, the entire body of of Paul's writings. And you'll see him in pursuit of that passion. He's going after it with all that he is. He's giving up so much, it is driving who he is. But then look at the eyewitness testimony. I think that's as important as what Paul says. And the chief eyewitness to Paul's work in his life is Luke. And look how Luke shows us how much passion that Paul has for his work for the Lord. Christ and God are at the center of his heart and his life. And it was demonstrated palpably. You couldn't be around Paul, I can't imagine, without things very quickly getting to what he cared so much about. That convicts me. And all that I care about and all that I express excitement about, nothing should exceed Christ. You know, sometimes though we lose sight of our passion, the fire goes out. You know, sometimes in the context of marriage we talk about how we need to reignite the spark in our relationship Perhaps it is that we've gone to our separate corners and maybe we're not doing those things that demonstrate how important that our spouse is to us. And so whatever that means, maybe it's getting into good books or maybe it's going to some kind of seminar. By the way, there's one in Tompkinsville, February 18th and 19th. We should go there and listen to Wayne and Tammy as they help us to invest in our relationship. Whatever it takes to really make that relationship a priority. A little known prophet by the name of Azariah comes to the good king Asa. Asa was one of the righteous kings of Judah, but as we think about him, that things things that happened in the kingdom where they had lost sight of God. So Azariah comes in Second Chronicles chapter fifteen and verse two, and the idea is that if you will remember God, he will remember you, but if you forget God, he'll forget you. And so he wants you to make an oath to him. And you'll look at Asa there, his, the queen mother had set up false gods and he came in and he wiped those out and he reestablished the true altar of God and he led all of the nation of Judah in worshiping God and they made an oath of loyalty. And second Chronicles 15 and verse 15 said that Judah rejoiced at the giving of this oath with their whole heart earnestly and he that is God let them that is Judah find him that's what we need sometimes we need to make sure that we're giving him our whole heart earnestly and as we seek him he will let us find him and so the first thing I want you to observe is that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts but then we are to love the Lord our God with uh, with all of our passion if you will Second, we are to love the Lord our God with presence. You know, sometimes we say, hey, be present. Be in this moment. So often it's hard for us not to be distracted, right? There's so many things going on in our life. And especially in relationships, we can find ourselves being detached in somewhere else. It seems to me that what Jesus is calling for in Matthew 22 in answer to how you're to love the Lord your God is by being present. And He says, Love the Lord your God with your soul. Literally, the idea there, and the first time that it's used of humanity is Genesis 2 and verse 7, and it means the breath of life. It is the whole self-conscious. And so it, it is more than the internal of the heart. It shows itself externally But it seems to me also that Jesus is using soul as he uses it in Matthew 16 and verse 26. Where he says, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? I am to love the Lord my God with the most precious thing that I have. And that's my never dying soul. But as that word is con- needing context for us to appreciate it, I also don't want to lose sight of the fact that God wants us to give all of our life; that He needs to be at the center of our uh, of our passion, as we've said, but also our presence. That is doing what God wants. It's His will. It's His work. How do I respond to that? If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sits at the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above and not on things of the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. And when Christ who is your life shall appear, then shall you appear with him in glory. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. I am to set my affections on things above. I am to set my thinking on the realm above. I have died with Christ, but Christ is my life, and I'm going to appear with Christ, and so that means I'm going to be present in this life. That I'm going to find myself using myself for Him in this life. Later on in Colossians 3, by the way, in verse 23, the Apostle Paul says, with regard to our earthly work and whatever you do, do it heartily or mightily, literally, from your soul as unto the Lord and not unto men. Well, how does that look, practically speaking? It means that I'm going to give Christ first place. I'm not going to give Him the leftovers. Matthew 6 and verse 33. And the people who know me associate me more with my faith than anything else about me. And when people look at my life, they realize that my faith does not have a price. That is, I'll be faithful until it involves something monetarily or it involves something with regard to popularity or with regard to pleasure. That when people look at me, they know what drives my life. Because I'm serving His will and I'm serving His work. All that I am, my totality that includes that of that part of me that will never die is given wholeheartedly to god and when that's the case when people look at me they will say he is my everything he is my all my love our love for the lord must be with passion it must be with presence but it also must be with power Now, it's interesting uh, that in Matthew 22, there's four places that we see this prominently featured. In Matthew's account in the Gospels, he does not mention, Love the Lord your God with all your might. But Mark does in Mark 12 and verse 33, and Luke does in Luke 10 and verse 27, and in that Shema in uh, Deuteronomy 6 and verse 5, Moses does. But here he says, I'm to love the Lord my God with all my mind. That is, my comprehension, my faculties, my thinking. The Lord wants us to be intuitive people, to think, to, to wrestle through with our faculties. But when we have wrestled through the questions, the great questions of life, what do we do with the information that we find? That's why so many who study passages like Deuteronomy six and verse five see that there is an overlapping of the idea of the mind and the might. I use my physical capabilities. I use my mental energies. Give of the uh, give of your best to the master. Give of the strength of your youth. Throw in your fresh glowing ardor into the battle for truth. Jesus has set the example. Dauntless was He, young and brave. Give Him your loyal devotion. Give Him the best that you have. Throw your might into everything that your hand finds to do for His glory. Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 10. Don't lag behind in diligence, but be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Romans chapter 12 and verse 11. Give Him all that you have. Your talents that God has given you, however many or few they are, give them to Him. Matthew 25 and verse 14. Every resource to the building up of the body of Christ every moment of your days. When we look at that together, it's all really held together with a beautiful glue. This gigantic little word, all. We've got to be all in. It's wholehearted. It's 100%. Can you imagine that a birthday party was thrown for you and as the guests were there and you began to mingle with them that somebody said, Man, what a hassle this has been. You know know how hard it is to shop for you? I had to spend all this time looking for the right gift and then I bought the gifts and then I had to wrap them and I was here and I was decorating the, the room and inviting people to come. What a pain. Wouldn't you feel good? Man, wouldn't you feel loved? Sometimes we find ourselves when it's time for us to come into worship. Oh, we wouldn't use those words, but we think about, man, the, I remember having three, and our boys are all boys, a wrestling match with those kids, trying to get them ready and get them here, and to keep them still and, and engaged in behaving through an entire hour. You know, an hour seems very short sometimes, but when you're trying to keep kids in, in worship still and, and, and behaving, it seems like an eternity. Oh, what a hassle. Oh, how difficult. How tough. Or oh, I find myself with all the problems I've got going on in my life. Lord, you know what all I've got going on between the services? All oh, this is. And what about away from the services? You know, I, I get tickled every time I think of something that Dave Eubank told me. He told me about a friend of his that had been to one of our services, and his estimation of members of the Churches of Christ is that we are the frozen chosen. We are because we don't have a band playing and because we don't speak in tongues. And while we could give biblical reasons for why we don't do those things, certainly nobody that sees us in our worship services or sees us away from the worship services and encounters us in life would ever think that our faith was cold and lifeless. Each of us must be a fervent servant and not the frozen chosen. When we think about what drives that, that's where we look at the Shema. Deuteronomy 6.5, God says, I want you to love me with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. But you know what he says in the next chapter? Deuteronomy 7.13, this is before they had begun to practice that. This is as Moses is delivering it. He reminds them, God has loved you. He has shown his love to you through the families that you have. You're blessed to have children and, and earthly possessions. He's going to protect you from the enemy. Deuteronomy 7, 13 through 15. God is saying, I want you to meet me because I've already extended the love. Romans 5, 6 through 8, God loved us before we were even born. And in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, we love him because he first loved us. Love originates with God. God calls for us to respond by loving God first and foremost in our lives. But that will play out in the rest of our lives. Haram, come preach to us about that.
1: As Neil mentioned a moment ago, the Old Testament law is said to have 613 commandments. You know, sometimes we study the Bible. And we might think to ourselves as we encounter certain difficulties, I wonder what this really means. Or, I wonder how this applies. And then we eventually on occasion throw up our hands and say, we'll just have to ask God when we get to heaven. I don't know if we'll have the same questions in heaven that we have on earth now, but sometimes it's interesting to think about. But imagine being in the first century and being a Jew your whole life and wondering what does God really want for me and what does all of this mean and how does it all apply to me? And then you don't go to God, but God comes to you in the flesh and you can ask him the questions that you really desire. That's what the Pharisees do in Matthew 22. And Jesus tells them the first and greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul and with all of your strength. And then he says the second is like it. You're to love your neighbor as yourself. He quotes Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5 and then Leviticus 19:18, And he merges those two texts together to say this is how you're to treat God, but this is also how you're to treat your neighbor. I never forget being in preaching school, and one of my teachers, Mike Elledge, said, you know, when you look at the great command and the second great command, it's typical that the world is all over the second command, loving their neighbor with no regard for the first. And many times Christians are all over the first commandment with no regard to the second. Now, whether or not you believe that's true, it still stands that there's some false dichotomy. We don't have to choose between loving God to the neglect of our neighbors or loving our neighbors to the neglect of God. The Bible says we can and must do both. Now, you knew these verses before Neil and I stood up and quoted them. It's not our job to really give you the information as much as we're to say, are we doing this? Is the second command as great a priority for you as it is for God? Three things from Matthew 22, 39 and 40. That can help us to make the second great command a priority. I meant to do this as soon as I got up here, but I'm going to interrupt and do it now. Neil embarrassed David last week. It was David's birthday. And just in case you forgot, today is Neil's birthday. And so let's not get out of the assembly today before we say happy birthday to Neil. We appreciate what he does. We appreciate his work and his friendship. How do we make the second great command a priority? Number one, we realize how it's connected with the first. Jesus says there's a second commandment like it. Now, they only ask Jesus for one command. What's the greatest commandment in the law? But Jesus adds in this second one because it is so tied and linked to the first in God's mind that the two just can't be separated. He uses a word which Greek lexicons say means like it. This word for like it means it's of the same nature. It's similar. You see, Jesus doesn't put the second commandment under the first one. He lays it alongside it. He says these two things go together. This is the command that we've had from him, that we're to believe on the name of Jesus Christ and to love one another. First, John 323. We love because he first loved us. If any man says he loves God and hates his brother, he's a liar. How can a man hate his brother whom he has seen and not love it and love his God whom he has not seen? John says he that loves God must love his brother also. First John four nineteen through 21. The two commands are linked together. And Jesus says they can't be separated. He quotes from Leviticus nineteen eighteen to say to the Jews on this occasion, the same Old Testament law that says love your neighbor, love your God. They say the very same things. If you're to love God based on what you read in the Old Testament law, you're also to love your neighbor. You know, sometimes we approach the Old Testament and we may think or say to ourselves, you know, the Old Testament law was given to separate Israel, to pull them away from everybody. But based on what Jesus says in this text, the Old Testament law was given to make Israel distinct and separate as a people. And if they were to put into practice the things that God gave them, they'd be the best neighbors around. Isaiah 49 and verse 6 says there to be a light to the nations. That's what Jesus is referencing in Matthew 5, 16, when he says, let your light so shine. What Israel failed to do is the church's turn to show the world what it's really like to follow God. We will make the second great command a priority when we see that it's inseparably linked to the first. You know, there are some things that just go together. If somebody said peanut butter and you'd say what peanut butter and jelly, bacon and eggs. Some of you said bacon and bacon, but that's wrong. Bacon and eggs, <laughs> red beans and rice. You just those things go together, grace and mercy. You can't say one without saying the second one or without seeing them connected. But there has to be a compartment in your mind and mind for this loving God, loving other people. Jesus says you can't separate them. They just go together. The second one is like it. It's not part two. It's not in addition to the Christian duty. This loving our neighbor as ourself is the Christian duty. Jesus says this is what it's all about. Loving people just like you love God. What if God's watching our lives, observing them in such a way that on the day of judgment we'll be graded and our lives will be judged and God's going to give us a report card? Many Christians may very well be surprised on the day of judgment to find out that they have an F in the love of God column, that they flunked the love of God. And Jesus will say to us, you haven't done this. And we'd say, well, how could that be the case? I've read the Bible. I've said my prayers. I've attended worship. And then in the next column, there may be an F for loving our neighbor as ourself, because Jesus says, what grade you have in one is the same grade you have in the other. These two things are linked together and you can't separate them. We will prioritize the second command when we realize how much it means to God and how much it should mean to us and that the two things go hand in hand. Jesus says, I want you to love your neighbor because it's just like the first in the ancient world. The pagan gods put their images on their temples so people would know what they look like and who to worship and who to serve. But if you go to Genesis chapter one and verse twenty six and twenty seven, the Bible says God made man in his own image. And so when they built the tabernacle and the temple and the Old Testament system, there's no need for God's image to be put on those things. Because anytime anybody that was a faithful Jew wanted to know what God looked like or what God was represented by, he or she just needed to look in the mirror or look on the face of one of their fellow men. That doesn't mean that you and God are twins. It just means that you're in the image of God and you mean a lot to him. And the way that we treat people is ultimately the way we treat God. You can't send God a Christmas card. You can't give God a hug. So how can you prove to God that you really love him in connection with the first commandment? It's how we exercise the second and how we treat people. Number two, the second command becomes a priority for us when we see and serve people properly. Jesus says the second is like it. You'll love your neighbor as yourself. How do we see people? Jesus' goal is to get us to see people in the same way that God sees them, to see them as image bearers made in God's image, and then to treat them properly. It's interesting how many times in the gospel accounts Jesus is trying to get people to see people. You would think that wouldn't be necessary, but it is. He's often nudging his disciples and saying, would you see him? Would you see her? Don't miss this. When the widow put in her two mites in Mark chapter 12, 43 and 44, Jesus says, do you see that woman? Look at what she's doing. In Luke chapter 7, when he's in the house of the Pharisee, Simon, and Simon's thinking within himself, why is he letting this woman with this checkered past anoint his feet and wipe them with her hair? And Jesus says in Luke 7:44, Simon, do you see this woman? Because if we see people, it'll change the way we treat them. Seeing the second great command, the way that God would have us to, means that we see people the right way and we serve them properly. And a parallel account to this one in Matthew in Luke chapter 10 A lawyer comes up to Jesus and he says, teacher, what's the greatest command in the law? Jesus says, what's in the law and how do you read it? You should love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, you've answered rightly. Do this and you'll live. But he willing to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus says, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. And they left him half dead. And there came by a priest, and he looked on him. He passed by on the other side. And by chance a Levite came by, and he came, and when he saw him, he likewise passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, when he saw him, he had compassion. Luke ten thirty three. He bandaged up his wounds. He poured in oil and wine. Sat him on his own beast, and took him to an inn. And when he got there, he gave the hostess two denarii, and he said, Whatever more he owes upon my return, I'll pay you. And Jesus says to the lawyer, which one of them was a neighbor to him? The point of the parable of the Good Samaritan is not a step by step manual to teach us how to treat every stranger we come into contact with. Jesus was saying, if you ever want to know what love looks like in action, look no further than this parable. Which one of them was a neighbor to him? Imagine being the robbed and the beaten individual on the road. He had to assume it was his lucky day. Because he just so happened to be in peril and the two most religious people in his world are coming down his street. If anybody knows Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5 and Leviticus 19, 18, it's the priest. It's his lucky day, but then it's not. And so what? The priest missed his opportunity, but here comes a Levite, a priest in training. Surely he'll be the man that'll help me. But then he doesn't. And it's the Samaritan, these two people who are from different walks of life. And the Samaritan does the work of a neighbor. The question for us is this. Would people be happy to see us coming? Jesus says, be a neighbor. Fred Rogers, you probably know him. He is a man of many talents. He was the producer, the showrunner and the host of the famous show, Mr. Rogers Neighborhood. It was designed for children, preschool ages two through five. His show was different from most shows like his. He was not like Sesame Street. Sesame Street tries to prepare preschoolers for kindergarten. Mr. Rogers Neighborhood, his show was designed to prepare people preschooling up for life. The show was labeled for ages two through five. But PBS added this label appropriate for all ages. And it is. When you read, when you watch the show and see how Mr. Rogers interacts, his gentle spirit, his conversational heart, his fun and jovial attitude. It was attractive to other people. If you've seen the show, at least the introduction, you just can't forget it. The switching out the suit jacket for the cardigan, sitting down and tossing the loafer up and switching it out for a tennis shoe. And then the question, won't you be my neighbor? My neighbor. He's been known as America's favorite neighbor. People just love the way that he interacted with people of all ages. And nobody ever outgrows the need to learn how to do this, how to be a neighbor. In one interview, Mr. Rogers said, love is everything. It's the root of all knowledge, all relationships, everything. And can't you hear that? Not Mr. Rogers theme song, but the New Testament as God says to us, won't you love your neighbor? You say, but they get on my nerves. Won't you love your neighbor? But they annoy me. Won't you love your neighbor? But they don't appreciate it. Won't you love your neighbor? It's all over the New Testament so that we don't forget it. Romans 13:8 through 10 says, oh, no, man, nothing but to love one another. He that loves a neighbor has fulfilled the whole law. James 2, 8 and 9. James says, if you fulfill the royal law, according to Scripture, you do well. Love your neighbor as yourself. Galatians five, thirteen and fourteen, Paul says, Brothers, you've been called to freedom, but don't use your freedom as an opportunity to serve the flesh, but by love serve one another, for all the law is fulfilled in this one word love your neighbor as yourself. First Peter two, seventeen says, Love the brotherhood, honor all men, fear God, honor the king. Jesus says, Love your enemies. Matthew five, forty three through forty eight. The louder they curse us, the more we're to bless them. Romans 12 and verse 14. Someone has said, when you survey all that the Bible says on loving neighbors, friends, enemies and family members, who is there left to hate? Jesus says, I want you to love them. We will love and prioritize the second command when we see and when we serve people properly. Jesus says, love your neighbor like you love yourself. You know, the Bible assumes that you love yourself Matthew 7 and verse 12, Jesus says, all things that you wish that people would do to you, do to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Ephesians five twenty nine, Paul says, no man ever hates his own flesh, but he nourishes it and he cherishes it just like Jesus does the church. Evidently, there's a fundamental flaw with somebody who can't love other people. It may very well be that he or she doesn't have a healthy relationship with themselves. Susan Jeffers says we should take the sticky note off of our foreheads, which say, please, I want you to like me and put them back on the mirror where they belong, because in the end, if we really love ourselves and see ourselves as we truly are, then and only then can we go out and love other people properly. Jesus says, love your neighbor as you love yourself, seeing and serving people properly means that we walk through a few steps and say a few things to ourselves. We say, I see them. I care about people. You remember what Cain said? Am I my brother's keeper? Genesis four and verse nine. God says, yes, you are. I see people. Not only that, I serve people. Their concerns become my concerns because I want to help them. I'm interested in them. Galatians six and verse 10. Paul says, as you therefore have opportunity, do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. I see them. I serve them. I switch seats with them. What if that were me? What would I want? You remember what Job told his friends, Job 16 and verse 4? If I were in your shoes, I could say the very same things. I see people, I care, I serve them. How can I help you? I switch seats with them. And then I search my own heart. And I say to myself, do people know that I believe this verse? Not by what I say, but by what I do. First John 3:18. John says, my little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. Do the people closest to me know I believe this verse. You don't have to get on a plane and go across the country or go next door or around your neighborhood. It may very well be the case that your neighbor that needs the most love from you is the person right across the couch or in the next room. Jesus says they're your neighbor, too. And the second command becomes our greatest priority when we see and serve people properly. Now, here's the last one. When we see the big picture, Jesus says on these two commands, the love God with all of your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself on these two commands hangs all the law and all the prophets. You just think about the Old Testament and you say, I want to read the Bible in the new year and you get to the book of Leviticus and you sometimes want to do a U-turn, don't you? You say all of these rules, all these regulations. And Jesus says, listen, in the end, it all boils down to these two commands. He has shown you, oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justly, love mercy and walk humbly with your God. Micah six and verse eight. This doesn't mean that God's unconcerned with the details, but it does mean this. As we think about these two commands in relation to everything else we study in the Bible, we should be sure to get this right. Unless we forget the meal and walk away with a bag full of condiments. We know everything else but these two things. If that's true about us, we've missed it. It doesn't mean that God's not concerned with authorized worship or how we're to be saved or scripturally organized as a congregation. But it does mean this. If we get all of that right and get this wrong, we're wrong. God says, I want you to make sure you realize that on these two things hang all the law and all the prophets. We might think to ourselves, the Old Testament is full of rules and legalism. Listen, that might have been what it became, but that was never God's intention. To read the Old Testament properly and faithfully is to fall in love with God and then to turn and love other people just like you love yourself. That was always God's intention. That's how to properly read the Old Testament. And that's what Jesus is trying to bring us to. The New Testament doesn't just say love your neighbor as yourself. It says more. It says when you do that, you fulfill the law of Moses. All that they never could do. We can when we do these things. You know, sometimes books have those little jackets on them and they'll have a little summary on the back to say, hey, this is what this book is all about. In short summary or right on the inside pocket, it'll have a short summary of these are the things that you can expect when you read this book. The Bible doesn't have one of those jackets. Every word of God is pure. Proverbs 30 and verse five. Man should not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Matthew four and verse four. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Every part of the Bible matters. But if the Bible did have one of those jackets, if it did have one of those brief summaries that would break down for people who have never read it before, what it's really all about, what do you think it would say? Would you agree with me that it would at least say this? Here is the historical account of God's creation of the world and of humanity, of humanity failing him in sin and of his radical love. To rescue men and bring them back to a self. And in so doing, everybody who responds to him in love is then told to turn and share that same love with other people. This is the most important book in the world. Read it at your own risk. Read it as if your life depends on it. Because it does. He that rejects me and receives not my words has one that judges him. These words that I've spoken to you will judge you in the last day. John 12 and verse 48. What words? Loving God with all of your heart soul, mind and strength and loving your neighbor just like you love yourself. I don't know what you think about when you hear those words. Some of us say, you know what? I really love God, but people can be an annoyance or I love some people, but not all of the people. Jesus says, I want you to love your neighbor like you love yourself. None of us can do it perfectly. He did. He came and he loved God with his heart, soul, mind and strength. How do you know it? Because of how he treated other people. He had compassion on them. He wept with them. He fed them. He took care of them. And people just concluded that he was close to God. And even after he did all those things, the world couldn't stand him. They got rid of him. They crucified him for our sins. He died and rose from the grave on the third day so that we, in believing in him, might enjoy his full and total and faithful obedience to God and be saved and justified ourselves. Jesus could have said anything in response to the question, but he said these words. This is what the Bible is pointing us to. Every time you pick up the Bible it's trying to teach us one of these two things or both simultaneously love God and then go and love people that wear his image. Maybe today someone needs to manifest their love for God by obeying the gospel, become, becoming a Christian, believing that Jesus is the son of God and turning from sin. And be immersed in water to have their sins forgiven. In doing that, a person says, God, I love you with my mind, with my heart, my soul and my strength. I can't save myself. I can't earn it. But I receive your grace by faith and I want you to save me. Maybe you've already done that and you realize that the first command means a lot to you. But the second hasn't meant as much as it should. Jesus says both columns on your eternal report card. We'll read the same thing as it relates to this, because these commands are just like one another. If we really love God, we love people made in his image. If we can pray with you or pray for you, if we can help you in any way as you seek to love God and seek to love others made in his image. Come now as together we stand and as we sing.